I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with a relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. And this week, I'm joined by my colleagues, Justin Chang and Kenneth Tran. I've sort of assembled this particular pair because we're going to be talking about The Other Side of the Wind, which is a newly completed film that was meant to be the final magnum opus of filmmaker Orson Welles, as well as a documentary called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which is a a documentary on the making of that made by Morgan Neville. And now, as much as possible, I'd like for the conversation that we have, you know, I feel like when I've heard people talking about this Wells project, it feels very intimidating and it sounds very exclusionary to a lot of people that feel they have to have a lot of knowledge about Orson Wells and they have to be a certain kind of person almost to like it. And so as much as possible, I'd like for us to try to demystify this as some sort of fetish object for film bros and to maybe get some idea of why this matters to cinema in 2018. And there, I think, are a lot of reasons to sort of dovetail off for that. So, Kenny, before we started recording, I asked you if you had ever actually met Orson Welles. Yes, I met him once. It was it was a fascinating moment. It was I was invited to some event that was in his honor. It was in a, some hotel ballroom somewhere and went in there and there is this, this big room and people are buzzing around. And Wells is sitting in the middle of a room in this enormous chair. You know, he's looking, when I think back on it, like something like the world's largest Hasidic bridegroom, you know, waiting to be carried <laughs> off in the chair. You know, so he's sitting there and people are being brought up to say hello to him, you know, and so they bring me up and I say, Mr. Wells, you know, it's, it's a real honor to meet you. I think you're just a great filmmaker, one of the world's best filmmakers. And he like is not reacting, you know, he's off somewhere else, you know, and I'm feeling, oh my God, maybe I've said the wrong thing to him. And so then I say, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, I say, well, you probably hear this all the time. And that woke him up and he looked at me and he says, he gives this huge Orson Welles laugh, you know, that we've all heard. You know? <laughs> and he says, you can't hear that too often. And I think that's just is a wonderful moment for me. I'd be interested to hear from you over the years. Has the other side of the wind been something that you've heard about? Have there Has it almost been completed before? I'd imagine, I mean, because it seems to me that it's something that's been rumored and talked about so much. I'm wondering if it ever had neared this point before, as far as you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I just feel like, you know, with everything with this film, you want to go in with full disclosure. You know, I'm a big Wells fan, you know, and if you're a big Wells fan, You've heard about this film. This is the one that never got finished, and I wonder what it would have been like. And there have been, I think, fits and starts of putting it together. You know, I couldn't give you, uh, you know, a timeline of them. But, you know, other people have had this idea. It's just been very difficult getting the rights together. So I've heard that this was in the works. But, uh, you know, quite frankly, I've been dreading it. You know, far from looking forward to it, I've been absolutely dreading it. Because, as I say, over the years— you see clips and bits and pieces and hear about it. And you know, it didn't never look to me appealing. Nothing I saw made me really enjoy it. And you know, again, one of the things I think we can talk about, one of the things that's fascinating about this is, this makes me think of the whole notion of the auteur theory. The auteur theory says, if you are a great director, every film you touch has elements of greatness in it. By definition, this is a great film. 
you know, whether whether you walk in and like it or an average person walks in and likes it, that Donald Trump walks in and likes it or not, doesn't matter. This is a great film. And I don't know that I believe that aspect of the auteur theory. You know, I was very disappointed in this film. And again, I say this as a major fan of Wells. What was it about the movie that ultimately disappointed you? Like after all these years and all this time of finally seeing it, what did it not have that you were, had maybe been hoping to get from it? It's almost like, where do I start? You know, for one thing, I had zero or less than zero emotional involvement with any of the characters. Did not believe they were real. Did not care what happened to them. And again, Wells is obviously a pyrotechnic director. He's not Frank Borzaghi. You know, he's not a director who's going for deep emotion necessarily. But he's such a gifted filmmaker that he gets that anyway. Things like, you know, the last scene of Touch of Evil, you know, with uh, Wells and Marlena Dietrich are enormously emotional, even though you wouldn't think that they would be in that kind of a film. So I didn't care about the characters. And I I felt a lot of the dialogue and situations felt dated to me in a way that is not Wells's fault. It's old stuff. Maybe it wouldn't have seemed dated when it came out. But looking at it today, it feels flat and dated to me, completely unconvincing. You know, all I was doing is, well, look, there's that guy. Look at him. I haven't seen him in years, you know. Justin, tell me a little bit more about that aspect of the movie and how you kind of feel about it. Do we hold the work of 1970 to 76 accountable by 2018 standards? I think you hold it accountable, but you don't necessarily reject the movie entirely on those grounds. Kenny, how do you feel about that, that a movie that needs to be explained or deciphered and the idea that you, I mean, many people have been saying the way to watch the movie is to watch The Other Side of the Wind, then watch They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, then watch The Other Side of the Wind again. And that sounds like a huge time commitment to ask of people. And there's a way in which, to me, that just sounds kind of ludicrous and unfair. And are, are there other moments when you can think of when that was necessary? Or how do you feel about that as like a way to have to approach a movie? Well, it's very unusual to have a documentary on a movie, on an unseen movie, come out at the same time as the movie. I can't think of another situation where that's happened. It's kind of unprecedented, so we don't usually have this opportunity. You know, I ended up seeing the documentary first, and it helped me understand, to the extent that it's understandable, you know, the feature itself. But, you know, usually I prefer to see the film on its own. I'm still not 100% pleased with it, actually, although it, it is what it is. And for me, it was like, well, let's talk about the fact that Oya Kodar, you know, who is not only one of the stars of the movie, but also the co-screenwriter and, of course, well, as you said, you know, Wells' late-in-life romantic partner and, and the one who, to my understanding, is the one who encouraged him to go in this more explicitly erotic and parodic kind of direction – the sexual politics are terrible and, and dated and antediluvian, even though she is sort of the sexual aggressor in these kind of ridiculous, ludicrous, overheated scenarios that the movie within a movie is exploring. And I wrote about this. I think the sex scene in the Mustang in the rain is kind of amazing. Like, I'm not ashamed to say, like, it's just a riveting scene just in terms of sheer aesthetics. I mean, maybe it's kind of reprehensible, but it's also one of the moments in the movie where just the form of it kind of I found genuinely kind of captivating. And it's interesting to me that even when he's trying to kind of mock something and and show, you know, and, and in a way, this whole movie is sort of his satire of, of the new Hollywood and also his tribute to it. There's a lot of, you know, confusion of kind of motivations going on. But 
in a way that added a layer that kept it from just being, oh, this is just a gross spectacle. It's like, okay, yeah, but he's sort of also, he kind of hates this. And I think this is where not only the other side of the wind, but the Love Me When I'm Dead, the documentary that goes with it, this is what makes this such an interesting and kind of rare project taken together in that the quote from Oja Kodar where she talks about her being the one who pushed Wells to sort of include that eroticism, that's in the documentary. So the documentary sort of acts as this extended footnote or like article that you can watch to go with the movie. And even that sex scene in the car, it was done with lights and garden hoses that they were inside this car and it was not raining. They were not moving. And it in some ways is like Wells as a master filmmaker in the sense of he was always pulling this magic trick of making something that didn't really exist appear to be something else. It's funny, when I first saw the movie, and this is another element of what is intriguing about this project is, Justin, as you said, the fact that it's being released by Netflix. So it's getting a limited theatrical release, but then most people will be experiencing it at home on whatever you know devices they watch this as a streaming platform. And so I first saw The Other Side of the Wind at a screening actually on 35 millimeter film. So like as old fashioned as one away as one could here in Los Angeles at the Aero Theater in Santa Monica. And there were a lot of sort of Wells acolytes and fans, people that were there, the filmmaker Henry Jaglum, who is another sort of longtime associate of Wells. He introduced the screening and complained that much of his footage had been cut out, (laughs) that he thought he should be in the movie more. And then I just found it so overwhelming. And then I watched it a second time streaming on my phone. And it's funny that it is the element of watching it the second time. I actually had a a better experience watching it on my phone, which I think you both know me well enough. I'm enough of like a nerd and a movie head that like, that makes no sense to me at all. Like that shouldn't be how I experienced it. But again, Orson Welles made a movie for me to stream on my phone. And like a, a technology he could not even have dreamed of in his lifetime. And yet there it is. And is that kind of where we're at as far as cinema in 2018? Well, I think that there are just so many paradoxes and contradictions to the fact that Netflix bankrolled this project. And more power to them. And my hat is off to them. And I spend as much time as any critic complaining about Netflix and maybe trotting out the kind of they're killing cinema kinds of complaints, which is hopefully very premature. But good for them for doing this, for taking on a project that no one else would touch and and quite understandably no one would touch or just didn't see as, as possible or worthwhile. But because this movie is kind of the opposite of Netflix and chill, right? It's like the, it's like I can't think of – it's like Netflix and pay attention. It so kind of works against the aesthetic of what is thought of as a Netflix movie or a Netflix series. And I know, of course, Netflix has many different kinds of films. But this one in particular, because its style is so abrasive and so – distancing in so many ways that you really have to make an extra effort. So maybe, and maybe it's because you had seen it already and you had a level of, you know, knowing what to expect. I watched it also on a screener, a Netflix screener after having seen it in a screening room and it was helpful and it was, you know, easier to get into. But then there's another part where I would say, even though I would agree with Kenny that a lot of the content and just the characters, the characterizations and the, and the dialogue, so much of it does feel very dated. Stylistically, it points maybe a little bit to Wells's prescience in some regards. Like this movie is kind of a found footage movie before found footage movies were in vogue. The, the kind of the mock 
documentary format, the film within a film thing, the cross-cutting, the rampant cross-cutting. These things are aesthetic techniques that we're very used to now, but I think it's worth seeing how well, for me, the movie for the most part played, even though there were parts that where it's just, it's coming at you. It's so kind of assaultive. There are tedious stretches to it. I was pleasantly surprised by thinking, oh, yeah, Wells, as usual, was kind of really onto something before his contemporaries were. And Kenny, we're having this conversation at a moment when a lot of controversy is happening in the film community for the fact that the sort of art house streaming service of Filmstruck is going to be canceled soon, that as part of the AT&T Time Warner merger Filmstruck which is a sort of combined effort of the Criterion Collection and Turner Classic Movies it has about 100,000 subscribers I have to say I was surprised that number is sounds kind of low and that people are really upset about it and what do you think it says about the way we're treating cinema history and film preservation in the digital era that, yes, we're getting the other side of the wind brought to us at long last by Netflix, but that this fantastic resource of Filmstruck apparently can't survive in the corporate culture. What does that kind of mean about where it leaves film fans and film history? Nothing good. It means nothing good, Mark. I think I can say that without fear of contradiction. You know, I mean, it's so interesting to me. When all this started, they feed us the big lie. They say, oh, this is great. Everything's going to be available. This is just a wonderful thing. It doesn't matter what you're giving up. Look at what you're gaining. Well, it turns out everything won't be available. Only everything that can command a huge audience will be available. And the smaller stuff uh, have no room for, no patience for. I mean, I think it's tragic. And Justin, do you have thoughts on the demise of Filmstruck? It's really sad. And it's also sad just to think that, you know, there's this petition which I signed and others have signed. And I don't know how much it is now, 15,000 signatures, whatever, save Filmstruck. And they're not really going to care about that. Even if they see that. I'm, I'm actually curious to know how many of the people who signed it are actually subscribers. I am a subscriber. Will soon not be one because the service is going out of business. It's really, really sad. It was sort of this weird disconnect to me as I was kind of preparing and scrolling through Filmstruck and seeing they have Chimes at Midnight, they have so much of Wells's back, back catalog, and meanwhile, it's going to be gone. And then, you know, of course, you can still buy them and buy Criterion discs and buy other DVDs, which I certainly plan to do. And then Netflix, in a, a, kind of an adjunct to this, I was reading over the weekend about some critics seeing like that they the fact that they had to search for the other side of the wind in their Netflix search engines. And, I, and we could spend a whole show, of course, trying to decipher the, the ins and outs of their algorithm and whatnot. I mean, I don't know the first thing about it, but people were complaining, saying that this is always the complaint about Netflix, which is that they buy a lot of films and in this case have you know spent a lot of money to see this project through and yet they're not spotlighting it appropriately. They're not putting their best foot forward. They're not giving the film the attention that it deserves. And I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, maybe sometimes it just takes a little while. Maybe they're probably playing a long game with this one and knowing it's going to be in the vault for a while. So, you know, hearing Justin say that, which is a very good point. I hadn't thought of it. It reminds me of, you know, a hundred years ago, the great uh, Russian director Tarkovsky uh, worked in the Soviet Union and he made these very, very artistic films that were kind of daring. Everyone wondered, how is he getting away with making this? And I had a friend who at the time was the Washington Post correspondent in Moscow. And I asked him, I said, why is going on? How come Tarkovsky gets to make these films? And he said, there's a Russian term. I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's something like pochazhuka. And it means things made to show for foreigners. In other words, 
he was allowed to make these films just so that the Soviet system could say, see, how bad can we be? We allow this man to work. And I think in some ways maybe Netflix is buying this to basically say to critics, we're not so bad. Look at us. We restored Orson Welles. But then when it comes to looking on the channel, no, they don't care. You know, so maybe the restoration is done just as a public relations thing. And now, Kenny, I want to be sure to ask you, you had mentioned that you are sort of a longtime Wells fan. For people who maybe the only one that they know is Citizen Kane, what would be another one or two titles that you would recommend to people to maybe get some sense of why Wells is important, why this sort of unfinished project of The Other Side of the Wind feels so monumental to his fans. What would be a couple other titles you think people should see? Oh, gosh, you know, there are two that come to my mind immediately. And what's interesting about them is that they couldn't be more different, but there's something they have in common, which actually, now that you asked me that, it's really the first time I've thought about them this way. I mean, one is Chimes at Midnight, which is Wells's version of uh, some of the history plays, the Henry plays of Shakespeare. And the other one is Touch of Evil, which is from a, you know, a paperback bestseller. It's a pulp movie. It's about criminals and, and bad guys in Mexico, you know, and Americans, you know, fighting it out with drug lords. And in some ways, they couldn't be more different. But it's Wells. What both of them is, is that it's Wells taking on traditional forms. I mean, the film noir form, historical Shakespeare thing. We've all had tons of films like that. But Wells brings his own particular vision, his own particular just astonishing facility with the making of film. I mean, the great thing about Wells' films is that you don't have to know anything to sit down at Touch of Evil and love it. You don't have to be a PhD. You don't have to have read all of Pauline Kael. All you have to do is be in your seat. You know, this film will speak to you. And that's why he was a great director. He spoke to everyone and to critics, and he knew it. I mean, one of the things Touch of Evil has had many different forms, and one of the times it came out on DVD, a long 60-page memo Wells wrote to the people, the money people in charge of Touch of Evil when he was trying to get his version out and they were stopping him. And he wrote this really heartfelt, it's a very sad memo because what he basically says in the memo says, guys, I know a thing or two. You know, he's not being the artist and saying, how dare you touch a frame of my great work. He's saying, guys, I know about making films. I know about reaching audiences. Trust me. And the sad thing is, is that they didn't trust him. And in fact, he did reach audiences. He knew how to reach audiences. And that's why these films are so uh, popular still today. And Justin, would you have a Wells title you'd want to Yeah, to people? kind of maybe compliments Kenny's picks and also The Magnificent Ambersons, um, mm -hmm. which I saw... Years ago, I think it was at the Arrow, they did a double bill with Citizen Kane. And of course, Ambersons is one of the great sort of ruined films of all time and is fascinating to consider next to Touch of Evil and next to The Other Side of the Wind for that reason. And there are still stories that, you know, the lost footage you know, is the holy grail of cinema or one of them. I'd rather and, yeah, see that than rather The see Other that. Side I mean, of the Wind. I would probably Not too. Not even close. <laughs> I don't think I would argue with you. I think so too. But even, you know, even in its truncated, ruined state, that movie is just, you know you're watching a masterpiece. And just the command of the film language of that movie, I remember just those you could just get lost in those tracking shots and in just the, the just the performances and the, you know, and it's one that is almost painful to revisit in a way because of its sort of shattered legacy. But that's my pick. And it's, it's, interesting. it's great that you mentioned that title in particular because that is coming out soon on a new disc from the Criterion Collection with all the kind of bells and whistles and bonus materials that we all expect from that company. So it's interesting where even still like that movie in particular or the idea of Wells and his legacy is really still living on. We will wrap up our talk on The Other Side of the Wind and Orson Welles. Justin, 
Kenny, uh, tell people where they can find your work online, Justin. Yes, thank you. You can find me at on Twitter at Justin C. Chang. And Kenny? And I'm on Twitter as well at Kenneth Karam. And of course, you can find me at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>